I think that's part of what hopefully keeps a 40 or 50 or 60 year old executive relevant in a world of a bunch of teenagers and 25 year olds are founding these companies is there actually is some value to having gone down a bunch of blind alleys and realizing if you're willing to interrogate yourself, why did I go there? What decisions did I make that I would correct in the future based on those patterns I'm seeing? I've got a bigger problem, which is how do I celebrate the successes more? Because I get so over-rotated on what did I learn and how do I improve myself that often I don't give myself enough pats on the back and motivation. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration about how hard it is both personally and professionally to build history-making companies. Enjoy. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on this show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out. There are companies in the KP portfolio that I would have dreamed of working for as an operator. Let's see if we can't find your next great career move. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here, Jevin. We are in a WeWork, seventh floor in Austin, Texas. Flew here to come see you. I can hear the conversations of most of our neighbors. And so we were just reminiscing on it. It's kind of nice to do this. It's, it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. Even with all the background noise and the ambiance, I'm still happy to be recording a podcast in a WeWork with you. Me too. <laughs> it's so nice to be back with people. It's good. All right. I get all these things started the same way. I'm going to read your background back to you. Your background honestly fills up a page. So I'm going to do this as best as I can, but my thing is screwing it up. And generally I screw it up when it's like a quarter of the page. And so <laughs> okay. like, indulge me and just tell me where I screw up. Cool. Okay. All right. Went to Berkeley, got your BS in business. Then you finished at the University of Pacific, maybe got your MBA. No, just half and half. Got it. Interesting. And then you went to Accenture. You were a consultant, did two years of that. Then you got your start in sales, did inside sales at Oracle to kick things off in 89. Then you went to PowerSoft, which was ultimately acquired by Sybase. If I'm not mistaken, you're employee like 17 there yeah. early. Yeah. Okay. Opened up a couple offices. Your sales career is starting to like pick up a little bit of steam. You're the sales manager for two years. Then you went to Patrol Software that was ultimately acquired by BMC. Then you started Icarian. Yep. Did I pronounce that right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Icarian. Kleiner Back company. Kleiner, Kleiner was Co the series one, A. One of the first companies in our Java fund yep. that Ted was managing. Was champion. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And Ted was young at that he point. He was. He was young. We were one of his first investments. He had just come out of Symantec. He had just come out of Symantec and done the Java fund. Yep. Which is crazy. And back then, Java was revolutionary. Like, and that fund really was just marketing. It was a coalition of what, like Sun, Amazon, Google, Kleiner? Google what wasn't was even around then. What it was because uh, in 1996, I think it was Ted picking up on the fact yeah. that Java was going to be the language yeah. of client server and internet based apps. And it was hot at the time. It was like Web 3.0 and blockchain now. And yeah. every cool company <laughs> was going to be built on Java. on Java. And so it was an awesome marketing play. Yeah. And we were one of their early cloud-based Java, well, it wasn't cloud back then, SaaS, it wasn't That's even right. SaS back then, it That's was right. ASP, Application Service Provider. That's right, Ted, I was obviously talking to him before you and I sat down and he was like, you gotta ask him about that. It was one of the first ever SaaS companies. Yeah. So anyway, pretty cool, crazy history. That was 96. Yep. That was almost 20, over 20 over years 20 ago. Over 20 years ago, yeah. 25 25 years ago. Years ago. 
Holy hell. Okay. Yeah, so a lot of lessons learned there. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And then from there, you went to PeopleSoft, yep. which is an interesting transition, which was then acquired by Oracle. Yep. Okay. You spent three years there as the VP and GM of the HCM product line. Yep. Then you went to SAP for six, seven years, EVP, global EVP, GM, blah, blah, blah. Like you were doing obviously really good work. Then you became a board member at Burst at some point. Yes. Then you also became the president of Baynote and you sat on the board. Yes. CEO, CEO Baynote, president and, board. and yep. then on the board. Yep. You did that only for a year. You were a board member there for four years. Yep. Then you went to Cisco as the SVP of product and solution marketing. Yep. Did that for two years. And then you went to Splunk in 2014 and you started as the SVP of field operations, which really just meant you owned all revenue. Yes. Right. You did a year of that before ultimately they pulled you in to be the CEO of Splunk. You have spent almost seven, six plus? Six years, almost a day as CEO. You're kidding. When's the anniversary? It was about a week ago. Six years, almost to the day. You recently announced, or it was recently announced that you're no longer the CEO. Yes. Which I have plenty of questions about, as you can imagine. Congrats on a hell of a run. You still have your Splunk email address. Yes. So they haven't totally booted you off, <laughs> off the campus yet. Is that right? I'm on campus until February 1st. Okay. This virtual campus. Oh, man. Okay. Can I just start asking questions? Absolutely. Okay, great. Employee 17 at PowerSoft. Is that right? Yep. One of the things that was very unique about your background is that I was trying to like pigeonhole you into a guy. I thought the reason that we were going to start to do this episode was what does it take to get from sales leader to the CEO of a company? And as I've spent hours researching you, I'm like, that's not a very fair characterization of your career. So then I was starting to ask myself, like, why the hell is this guy like this? Where does Doug get <laughs> this thing? And so I started to learn. So maybe before I even dive into the career stuff that you moved 11 times before you were in eighth grade. Yes. Is that right? That's correct. Please tell me more. Uh, <laughs> so I love the research that you do, Juven. It's, it's awesome as part of the podcast. And that actually is, I think, an important element to why is my career very open, very exploratory. Everyone says immediately, okay, military family, because that'd be the logical piece. And we were military. I've got a very passionate mom that is interested in lots of different things and went through different marriages, different ideas of where she wanted to live. So it was all really self-inflicted moves. There's always a reason for every one of them, but they weren't all U.S. I was born in the East Coast in a little town called Bronxville, New York, which is in Westchester County. And then we moved to East Chester and then moved to Mexico City for three years when I was three years old. And I was the token American in the school that got beat up because I couldn't speak Spanish. Everyone worked for my grandfather. He had built this really successful food brokerage company, and he demanded, to his credit, that everyone go to college. And my dad started University of Miami, partied way too much, flunked out, and University of Miami was not a stellar academic organization back yeah. then. And so he got a University of Mexico. So we moved there. Then he decided he didn't want to work for my grandfather, so we moved to Phoenix. And he was a salesman. He got a job yeah. for... I think Xerox, but it was one of the early copy companies. And then we moved to Scottsdale, Arizona. And then my mom got divorced and we moved to Malibu. And then my grandmother broke her hip. So we moved back to New York, to Scarsdale to support my grandmother through her hip repair. 
And she got frustrated being close to her parents and she moved back to Southern California. We lived in Huntington Beach and Westminster, Southern California. And then she started dating what became my first stepdad and he wanted to live in Lake Tahoe. He is an airline pilot. So he moved to Incline Village so that he could get Nevada tax advantage and still fly out of SFO. And we lived there for three years and my mom realized the school system back then was not very good. So she researched the Bay Area, what had the best schools, and Orinda had one of the best school systems and was affordable at the time. So we moved to Orinda. That was eighth grade. And I got in the pattern at this point in time. So I got two really good, close to two folks. They're still my really good friends. And one of their parents I became really close with. And by the end of eighth grade, my mom did what I expected, which is we're going to move again. And I said, well, you know, I've already talked to the Hendersons and they said that I could live with them. You saw this coming. I saw it coming. So I said, you can move if you want, but I'm staying in Rinda and I'm happy to live with somebody else if that's what it takes. You're kidding me. And did you have siblings? I had a younger sister. How much younger? Two years. Still have a younger sister. <laughs> Luckily, she's still alive. You seem to have worn it well. Did she? Not quite as well. I think it's a little bit more being the mother-daughter thing is rough for many, especially as the girls mature. Yeah. And my mom wasn't that stable on the male figure front. And I think there's just a lot more tension between my mom and my sister. So she didn't adapt as well. And I think I got luckier where the mom-son right. relationship, relationship works. Yeah. So we might spend some time here. This blew me away. You described, it was a speech that you gave somewhere. It's actually really good. It was the only thing that I could find about you that was really detailing your early upbringing. And it was a talk that you gave somewhere. And you said you had three habits to help you cope with your moves. And those three habits were the following. Every move that you did, everything was unpacked in your room within 24 hours. Yep. And I say habits, like these are just things that you consistently did. The second was that you were pretty much at the top of your class everywhere you went. So you somehow managed to get good grades. And then the third was sports. Yep. And given where you were living is the sport that you would play. So when you were in Tahoe, you would ski. Yep. When you were somewhere else, you'd play basketball. You'd play whatever was the sport at that school, yep. given the climate or wherever you were. Can we first talk about why did you unpack everything in 24 hours? Like, <laughs> I think it goes back to control those things you can control. Yeah. And so I became OCD for a while. I've actually kind of relaxed on that, but I had my record collection and I immediately unpacked that. And it was always alphabetically ordered. All of my clothes went from like short sleeve to long sleeve and were color coded. And, but that was because you were trying to create order in chaos. Exactly. So my room was order. And that's why immediately, even now today, when I go to a hotel room, even if I'm crammed for time, I always unpack my suitcase or if I don't have time intellectually or emotionally, it's hard for me because I just want to get that room organized. My clothes are hung up. My bathroom stuff is put away. Oh <laughs> and then despite all of this, and, and this was like super impressive to me, you're still getting great grades. Yes. Yeah. My mom, classic East Coast, Jewish type mom. She was like, I don't care how much we move. You're still getting A's. You're getting A's. Education is really important. And it helped and hurt. Sometimes the kid that's at the front of the class with the arm up doesn't do very well. They gets picked on. But for sure, the teachers were like, oh, okay, it's a good kid. We're going to spend attention. And she's a and is she a first-generation immigrant? Yes. Yeah. Both of her parents came from Eastern Europe. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. My mother's the same way. Like I used to just, she used to just tell me to go study. 
And I'd be like, what does that mean? She'd be just, no, just go to your room and study your math. And I'm like, I don't have anything to study. I'm also like in seventh grade. Like I don't know, there's nothing. And so she'd be like, I don't care. So I just go to my room. I put my legs up. I put the textbook there. And they just have my Game Boy behind it. Cause I'm like, this is so pointless. Okay. And then the third piece of this is the sports. This blew me away. So literally you'd go to Tahoe and you'd be like, I got to learn how to ski. Yes. Like, would you join the ski team? Yeah. One of my favorite parts about Tahoe is one, I learned to ski and two, if you're on ski team, PE, they structured it. So that was the last period of the day. And so at one o'clock you'd board a bus in Incline Village, it's five minutes and you go to the ski slopes and you run gates all day and get back home at like 5.30. Run gates being like, you just go ski do gates. laps. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Slalom, giant slalom. But okay, independent of the skiing thing, then you would go pick up baseball, then you go pick up basketball. You would just sequentially learn new sports? Yep. Why? Because that's where you fit in. If you were the brand new kid and you could catch a football or you could hit a baseball or you could do whatever the heck the thing was, mm -hmm. then you wouldn't be last to be picked on the teams and you'd get to know folks and you'd right. be accepted. And so my right. acceptance criteria was, you know, under my mom, I had to be good at school. So whether that was good or bad in that school. Yeah. Uh, I was going to be good at school. And then I'm going to be the kid that at least can get along with other kids because I can play sports. Right. And then you get picked on the team and then all of a sudden people want to pass it to you. They want to play with you. They want to hang out with you, yep. et cetera. Yep. When I moved, I moved from the Bay Area to San Diego my freshman year of high school. Grew up in the Bay Area my entire life. And I was so upset. Because I was going to- Freshman year is a tough year. A too. tough year. Yeah. And I was, you know, I had the same friends for grow, like Your throughout my life. elementary, middle school, everything. And I had a really close group of friends and we moved for my stepdad's job. Anyway, long story short, I was so sad because I was going to go to a new high school and all of my friends were going to the high school that I thought I should have been going to. And for the first week and a half, maybe two weeks, I was so embarrassed that I didn't know anybody that I used to walk around eating my lunch, like as I walked, because I never wanted to sit alone right. because I never wanted to project that I didn't have friends. And that's a very like insecure, sensitive time in your life. For sure. So anyway, I empathize when I read this stuff. Yeah, coming to Austin was interesting because since that time, I've been much more stable. I control my environment. So when I worked for SAP, I would go over there every other week to meet with my teams. And then during the summers, I would go for two or three months at an apartment in SAP, but I always had my residence back in Northern California. So it's been super stable. And then coming here was the first real dislocation that I've had. And dropping the kids off for school in August, there was a all parent kind of commingle, typical yeah. courtyard meet and greet. And Christy and I, my wife walk in and I look around and I realize I literally do not know one single human being in this yeah. courtyard. Yeah. And it brought back so many of those emotions yeah. of, cause 30 years in Northern California, no matter where I go, yeah. I know somebody, there's always two or three people that- right. It's a so small it's, valley. Yeah, it's been interesting. Well, and taking that a step further, and at the time you were at Splunk, you still are, but they probably don't know what Splunk is. No idea. You know, like you don't even have that to like find common ground in. Yeah. You know, like they literally don't know. Yes, for sure. <laughs> it's crazy. Okay. I have more for you here on the early day. So did you do a bike ride up Mount Aspen? Yeah. <laughs> Ted remembers that actually. Yes. Kleiner used to have a CEO conference. He probably still do. Yeah. It was such a great conference. It's in Calistoga. So then it was at the Aspen Institute. And back then the class in this same class was Jeff Bezos. And Jeff, this was 1996, 97. In your investment class. Yes. In the Kleiner Fund class. Okay. And so you get to hang out with Eric Schmidt, with John Doerr, with Jeff Bezos. 
And it was intimidating and, and awesome at the same time. But now I'm addicted to exercise even still. They had a function where you were going to be at the very top of Aspen Mountain and have lunch. And <laughs> instead of taking the, the truck up. Shut up. You did this at the Kleiner CEO Summit? Yeah. I got up early in the morning and I decided to run to the top. And I'm probably three quarters of the way up. And this truck, and it's steep as hell. If you've heard on this, this SUV thing is chugging up the hill and, and Ted's in the back. He's like, Merritt, <laughs> what are you doing? I'm pouring sweat. It's super high elevation, but... <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, exercise Exercise and sports are, are still important. Are you kidding me? No. Did you show up to the summit sweaty? Oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> oh my God. These guys are like, this guy's a psycho. <laughs> this guy's absolutely nuts. <laughs> when I was with like Carrie and another, another one I love, we went to Snowbird Aralta, some summit, like a Smith Barney. And I was supposed to be on at 10 and the snow was awesome. So I got up early and I pushed it so much that when I got up on stage to give my speech for Icarian, I went with my full ski clothes, my boots still on. Come on. They were panicked. Like, where's Doug? Where's Doug? Oh my <laughs> I was trying to get from God. one of the mountains to the other. Oh, well, to get back. we should have a 25 year anniversary of you returning to the CEO Kleiner <laughs> Summit. They were doing it in Calistoga, rented out the four seats. It's going to be like insane. They always are. It'll be so much fun. Because well, people will be back together. People will be It'll back be together. It'll be so nice. And to boot, it is our 50th anniversary wow so we are bringing back all of the legends like bezos like everybody we're gonna bring everybody and the whole class of kleiner old school ceos can you believe it's been 50 I cannot years? Believe it's been 50 years isn't that crazy that's crazy and maybe i'm biased but i still feel like we're getting our new sea legs underneath us. like i still think we got another run ahead of us hey with web 3.0 it's all fresh again like literally every single category is gonna be redone i still think we have a run i, I want to watch us. you guys just crush it over oh, the next 10 years man. okay speaking of working out Every morning? You work out every morning? Almost. It depends. But do you I, get pissed at yourself if you miss a workout in the for, morning? Yeah. My, so do I. It frustrates my wife. She yeah. says, just can't you rest for a day? Yeah. This morning, I did a run around the lake. Town Lake. Yeah. That's a cool trail, isn't it? So I did. It wasn't a crazy run, but it was a good run. So I lived in Austin during COVID I didn't for two and a half months. Okay. And it was amazing. In fact, I want to move here. And I would run that trail every day. And I was like, this might be one of my favorites of anywhere. It was so good. And it's one of the many things I love about Austin is how outdoorsy and athletic it is. Like that trail, uh, I've, I have not run, my knees are so bad now that I'll bike or, yeah. or something, but it's packed at 6 a.m. It's amazing. It's, I'm a fan. I'm oh, a fan. Okay. What other habits do you have? What other things do you get mad at yourself if you don't do in a given day? One of the things that I've learned to prioritize heavily is I try and be home every single day. Travel has gotten harder for me to do and COVID is awesome because I hate missing time with my kids. So that's a really important thing. And with my job, it's not possible, but I've just done extreme things with travel to make sure that taking red eyes, wherever I have to, so I can be home. What's extreme? Once I was in Hong Kong for less than five hours, flew out to Hong Kong, did two, three meetings and flew back. Got, got on, on the same physical day, got on a plane to go back. And what about being home? Is it for dinner, tuck them in? It's to be part of their life in some way. So right now, because the Austin time zone is two hours ahead of the West Coast, which so many people are still on, I get to take them to school almost every morning other than when I'm traveling, which is awesome. 
I wouldn't have gotten to do in the barrier that much. And do you feel like, and this is maybe me projecting my own shit, but do you feel like you're compensating for what you necessarily didn't have in a father figure? For sure. Yeah. For sure. That, that makes sense. Yeah. How old are the kids? I got divorced and remarried. So I've got twin nine-year-olds and then a 17-year-old and a 20-year-old. Wow. And is everybody in Austin now? No, just the twins. What was the catalyst for leaving the Bay Area? When did you do it? Did it a year and a half ago, June of 2020. So you realized pretty quick in COVID that you did not want to be in the Bay Area. Yes. Was yeah. it premeditated before COVID? It had been building before COVID. That and did that, sorry to interrupt you, but coincide with what was going to be your exit of Splunk too? Were those things independent? No, totally independent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, nothing to do with Splunk. Okay. More my realization, one of the simple maxims I try to follow is be in the epicenter of the thing that you want to be part of. So if you want to be in the film business, move to LA. If you want to be in Wall Street, move to New York. And for me, I've been in high tech my entire career. And so of course you want to be in Silicon Valley. And the few times working for SAP out of Germany, working for PowerSoft out of Boston where I was far away, it wasn't as fulfilling as being right there at corporate headquarters next to everybody else. So I've always felt like I had to live in the Bay Area. And what I saw in three months of COVID is, oh, that's gone forever. It was an illusion in the first place when I thought about Splunk. We've got, at that point, probably 4,500 employees, 5,000 employees. Less than 15% of them were coming to the building that I went to in San Jose at Santana Row. But because you went there every day and because most of your team was there, you felt super connected. And obviously, as we all went remote, that first myth of you've got to all be in one place becomes exposed. Like you don't have to be in the office every day in one spot. And as I really peeled back and looked, I wasn't that connected. You generally stay on your floor. You try and walk around as much as possible. And I'm not really connected to the employees. Were your executives there? Most were there, but not everybody. Because the argument that holds weight with me, especially as I think, because like, I really want to come to Austin and they're not like, I'm not allowed to right now. They're like, Hey, you're a senior member of the firm, blah, blah, blah. We want you in the office because that's where we are. We being the rest of the partnership. And so my argument was always, well, people like you and everybody else that I generally interface with, including more and more of our CEOs, don't live in the Bay Area anymore. And they said, yes, true, but we do. And I still understand that argument. What do you think about that? Your executives were in the office there. You don't get to see them as much. You lose the serendipity with them in Austin or no? The pattern that I've watched and I think we'll settle into is... One, if you really look at the calendars and the interaction points for a team that is even co-located, there's not that much interaction during the course of a day. The head of sales on the road often visiting customers, the head of engineering is in separate meetings, the head of marketing, sometimes in the office, sometimes not, but everyone's kind of going in different directions. And the times you get together are the meetings, the formal meeting structures, executive team meetings once a week, or if you have one once a month. And with COVID, that just became even more emphasized that now people have got location portability. So the Splunk exec team now is super distributed. Very few are in the Bay Area. But the need to still come together, I agree completely with. We're a social species. But where do you come together, I think, becomes much more interesting and elective. And for someone like Splunk that has offices in almost 30 countries, if you really want to touch the employees and be close, then why couldn't you have your monthly face-to-face exec meetings have those over two or three days and have one month in the DC office, have the next month in a London office, have the month after that back in San Francisco, have the month after that in the Singapore office. That way you can touch the employees, you can touch customers, you can interact with local press and partners. 
and get your face time with your peers. But if you really want to connect to your employee base, my view for the exec level is you have to go to where the employees are, because I think we've seen pretty clearly, unless something dramatically changes for the economy and that balance of power dramatically shifts, which I cannot see happening both economically and with Web 3.0, you're going to have to pay much more attention to employee wishes, which means go to where they are. Because I do think face-to-face still matters. Do you, this is a weird question. Do you ever feel like that about your personal life? What I mean by that is, do you ever think, okay, maybe when the kids are gone in school or whatever, your, your wife's name is Christine? Yep. Christine, let's go live somewhere once a month. Or was your, do you have an allergy to that personally? Because of like in your personal life, you're like, no, no, I need a home with my stuff that is color coordinated. Like, what, 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 like <laughs> where, where, do you, where do you follow that? I think that is changing for all of us as well. And it's changed for me for sure. That the, I think while we've gone to nations and formal communities as the gravitating force, I think that's continuing to fragment and create more niches like everything else in our life. So being with my community means a lot. I've got 13, 15, 20 friends that I love spending a lot of time with, making sure that I can spend enough time in areas where they are is going to be important, but all of us are pretty portable now. So I've got a community of friends and we like to go to Cabo. So let's time it. So we're in Cabo for a couple of weeks together or wherever it happens to be around the world. And I could see, I do believe that we'll see, especially when the kids are out, because I can't imagine the kids are going to live down the street from us. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Maybe they will. Let's be portable, but only so portable as around communities of people that we're really excited about being around. Right. And what you're saying, or correct me if I'm wrong, is that community is independent from geography. I think it's becoming very decoupled. Right. So you could be very intentional about a location similar to an office for work and just say, hey, we're going to go spend two weeks in Cabo, whatever. Yep. And that, I mean, what I'm seeing work pattern wise, we're seeing replicated much more, at least with the people that I'm spending time with on location. People are now starting to think, how many passports can I have? How much fluidity can I have around the globe to make sure I can be where I want to be, where I feel like I belong and I'm welcome, but I can also be with the groups of people that I really want to spend time with. Yeah. I don't know if you knew this and the audience is going to be sick of hearing me say this, but COVID hit in March of last year. I was in San Francisco seeing someone pretty seriously. Like I had a lot of things in my life that were attached to San Francisco, my car, everything, my job. And then by May, I was like, nope, I'm out of here. And I packed a suitcase. I went to Lake Tahoe for the summer. And then I was like, I'm not coming back. And so I went from Lake Tahoe to Venice Beach, lived on the beach for four months in LA. Then I went to Maui, spent a month in Maui in January, still all out of my suitcase. And then I went from Maui to New York, Philly, Austin, Cabo, Palm Springs, Miami, Scottsdale, Portland, the Hamptons. Wow. Still going. Steven, that's super cool. Still going. And what I do is I leave. Well, so I'll only be in Austin for a night, which was last night. And then I'll leave today. But I will, if it's for more than like five to seven days, if I'm there for like an extended period of time, give up my clothes, go to Goodwill and or go to find a homeless guy and then buy new clothes because I'm on the road for literally like pretty extended periods of time. And I have a rule of thumb where I have to only have a carry on. And then usually I'll have, I don't have it on this trip, but my golf bag Yep. and my golf bag will have enough space for three to four pairs of shoes. (laughs) And the lesson that I've learned in all this is like, A, I'm pretty happy everywhere. I'm actually pretty happy everywhere. I'm 
much happier in environments of change than I am in environments of static. I don't like stasis. Like yep. that, that scares me a little bit now. And two, I think, okay, I'm excited to have a kitchen, settle down, whatever. I know that in 10 to 14 days, I'm going to start panicking. Cause I'm gonna be like, I need more adventure in my life. And then three, I've never realized how little I need to just be like pretty happy. That is such a cool, positive COVID story. And again, I think it goes with so many of the trends that are happening in the world. Yeah. And it even just if I go to my own life, I walk into my closet, three quarters of this stuff, 80% of stuff, yeah, I never touch. It's like, that is no longer a thing I'm interested in. Right. So we do not need so much of what we think that we do need. Color-coded for no reason in your closet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They uh, belong with somebody else. Okay, I got more for you here. So I actually want to jump back to the early part of your career. I guess, first of all, you left Oracle. Oracle had at least a thousand people there, right? Yeah, we were about 600 million when I joined. They had just gone public like the year and a half before. And we were uh, 1.3 billion, 1.2, 1.3 when I left. And I heard you say somewhere else, you thought the company wasn't going to grow much from here. Yeah, and like, so you left. It was now a big, bloated company, <laughs> right, right. bureaucratic, like IBM. It's like <laughs> right, right. $1 billion. Yeah, like that big. Turns out they could still 50X from there. <laughs> yeah. And you were cold calling? What were you doing? Yeah. The way inside sales work, there were BDRs, STRs, the equivalent that supported the inside sales team. Got it. So you were generally coming in. They, Siebel actually helped Tom build the internal system called Oasis that he then mirrored. He actually took the IT team that built it to start Siebel Systems because he saw how well it worked at Oracle. But so when you walked in with the VT 220 type screen, like a green screen with the old Oracle forms, Oracle report writer interfaces, you'd see a list of here's all the people that have responded to something or the BDR is qualified. So you're generally- Those are SQLs that you were following all up SQLs on. SQLs that you were following up on. So it was more confirming what had been there. And we all had territories because I was a programmer right. from Accenture that was new to sales. I actually spent a few months as a pre-sales rep yep. to come up to speed with the technology. Um, like an SE. Like an SE. Yep. Inside sales SE. Yep. They gave me the least desirable patch, which was public utilities on largely the Western US. And you crushed it. We went up doing pretty well. Yeah. And they were all big blue shops, IBM shops. So it's hard selling this radical relational database into these very conservative mainframe based. I'm going to uh, age myself, but I've never heard IBM be referred to as big blue. Why do you split your time between Berkeley and UOP? Uh, so I, my mom really wanted, her dad was an entrepreneur and she wanted me to be a doctor because a doctor was a stable and safe type of profession. So my whole life I was programmed, you've got to be pre-med. I went to Cal, was pre-med in 1982, 83. It was so impacted that I just couldn't get any of my pre-med courses. So I was taking really interesting like rhetoric and poli-sci courses, but they weren't biochem and chem and the prereqs you need. And my sister, who was not quite as good of a student, but super bright, was applying to UOP. My mom was like, yeah, I went up there. It's really nice. They've got a great dental school. Why don't you just go there for a semester, take all those 1A classes you can't get because you're accumulating all these credits. They're not going to be for anything. It's like, hey, that's a good idea. Let me do that. And I went up there and then realized I love this small environment. It's classes of 40, 50, 60 people. And then no I way. shadowed one of my friend's parents, who was a doctor that first summer, I realized I don't even want to be a doctor. That's my mom's dream, not my dream. I want to be a businessman. And so I transitioned from pre-med to business administration. Whoa, that's a crazy story. So the next move that surprised me was you go from pretty big Oracle to employee 17 at PowerSoft. What's up with that? The field back then, 
Tom ran inside sales and the different, I forget who the leader was of outside sales, my, uh, not Mike Fields, anyway. And they were not, there was no love between the two of them, between inside sales and outside sales. But I had found a way to cozy up really close to the head of field sales for utilities. We actually created a super ingenious approach, given how hard it was to crack these utilities, where instead of me competing, because in general, you were both fighting the inside sales, you could only do a deal of 75K. So you would find a bigger deal and then break it up into multiple POs. And the field reps would find these small deals and convince everyone to cluster it together so they could do the deals. And when I approached this guy, Ed Clark, who sadly is no longer with us, said, this is silly. Like I'm on the phone all day calling into your accounts. Why don't we just split? So I got a percentage of every deal so we could cooperate. So I was really got close to the field guys. And Ed went to be the head of sales for PowerSoft. And you joined him. And it was a $2,500 per seat Windows object-oriented development environment back when Windows was 2.0 and crashed all the time. And no one knew what object-oriented programming was. And it was a graphical user interface and they needed sales. And I was, you know, I may have been like employee 30 or 40, but they were all back on product management development. I was the first sales rep hired and Ed wanted an inside sales model. Hey, if it's $2,500 a seat, there's no way that field sales is going to work the way that we thought it would. So let me turn to Doug and then other Oracle inside sales reps and build the field sales force, the people that know how to cold call. How'd you do there? Great. It was so much fun. And you crushed it. We crushed and it. And that gave you a bunch of confidence going into your sales career. Bunch of confidence. I was the only hire in sales and I had the whole West Coast. I had to hire my pre-sales rep and then I became the sales manager for the West Coast. Yeah. I had to hire business development reps. And so that was my first taste of management, but it was such a cool product. And my leap there, I never even contemplated how dangerous it was. I got a demo of the product. I met Ed in a hotel room by the airport and just felt every customer that I talked to at Oracle said, okay, the database is great, but the development tools to create apps suck. And I need a way to really crank yeah. up this code. And when I saw PowerSoft, PowerBuilder, it's like, this is the answer that all my customers have been asking for. And, and you became a sales manager assumptively because you were a great rep. And so you could then just recruit based on being the poster boy of what you did in your work. Yeah. When you're the individual contributor sales rep, you know, sales process pretty yeah. well. So. Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> I have such a similar story. After my first BDR job, the company ended up raising way too much money, which I think we're going to get to a similar story for you. And then my boss, he tried to leave. Then they made him VP of sales. Never a good idea anyway, when you're already at your door. Yeah. When you're at the door, you're at the door. Yes, you're not going to save people. Didn't, didn't last long. Then he goes to another cloud security company. First person he calls is me. And he's like, I want you to be my first inside sales rep. Yes. There's already some people on the team there. It was a 40, 50 person team, but a lot of it was a pre-existing team. And I went to the Bain Capital Ventures office, which was so nice. And he sat down with me. Enrique? Enrique was on the board. Okay. And it was Jeff Williams, who's the operating okay. partner yep. there, who I think I'm sure you know both of them. Yep. Yeah. And so first I sat down with Jeff and he gives me a demo of the product. And then I'm like, Jeff, am I gonna have to go get all my own leads? What's going on? Give me a sense of like, are we getting pulled or are we pushing into the market? And he goes, look, and two minutes before he would get notifications through email. And he got one that said that DNC had just signed up for a free trial. And I was like, I'm in, which is really ironic thinking back on it now. But, but anyway, I was like, okay, I'm in. And that was it. And then I talked to Jeff Williams and then I talked to Enrique and then my first full quarter there ended up absolutely smashing it. 
smashing it. And Enrique came out, gave me a standing O with the board, all these things. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, I know how to sell. And then to my point about you, like then I just became the poster boy for how to build a sales playbook because it was exactly what I just did. Right. And then recruit towards, oh, I just killed it. Like you can kill it. Yes. I know what to look for. I exactly. know who's going to kill it. Yeah, exactly. And that's coming up to the ranks of something like a BDR and then an ISR and then eventually field and then management, I think is such a great way to develop a career because you learn what staying as close as possible to the customer and how work actually gets done, I think is critical. And you learn all those core skills that you can then translate to, does the person I'm hiring know how to do this job or not? Do you have a bias when you recruit now? Do you get a little glimmer in your eye when you see someone coming up through that rank? Without a doubt, for sure. I love the pre-sales rep that's turned into a sales rep or wants to, the BDR or inside sales rep that wants to go to the field. And at every company, including Splunk, those almost always make our most successful sales reps. And then you know, sometimes managers, there's a different criteria for managers. And it's interesting, and we'll get to Splunk in a second here, but your North Star value that you defined at Splunk is that everything's about the customer. And so maybe, and I don't mean to create a script that is non-existent here, but like maybe there's something about the sales rep that's always grounded in doing what's best for the customer. Absolutely. And so if that muscle memory is built early in your career, that's a good way to couch a lot of the decisions that you make yes. based in the customer. And there's a difference between the great sales reps and the not as great. That I think goes back to that customer orientation as well all reps are going to be coin operated to an extent and they're going to work the comp plan. But I think the really good reps make sure that they've got the foundation because we want people that are going to optimize their income, but then they turn all their attention to, am I going to make this customer successful? Yeah. Um, if you're smart at all, especially in a cloud world, you know, that's the first bite of a hundred bytes. So you better treat that customer well. But if you think even holistically, whether I'm with this company long-term or not, as I grow my career, I want to be able to go back to that first line developer or manager or CIO, and they want to trust me and yeah. I want to sell to them again and again and again. So yeah. that customer orientation, I think is beyond mission critical. Yeah. One more thing on that and then we can move on. But you said, oh, I think most sales reps are coin operated. I couldn't agree more. One of my pet peeves recently has been, I've been doing a lot of interviews of reps trying to figure out what portfolio company they want to go to. And I asked them like to stack rank a list of priorities that they have in their life, career, upward mobility, money, all these things. And for some reason, there's just this wave of reps that all want to go into management for what I think are the wrong reasons, generally equity. They want a VP in front of their title, number one. And then number two, they tell me that money is not a priority to them. And I just know how disingenuous it is as if it's the answer that I want to hear. Right. So when someone tells me I just want to be an enterprise rep because I like making good money and having autonomy, it's so refreshing. I'm like, let's just call a spade a spade. Like, by the way, what are you embarrassed by? What are you trying to run away from? Is it better? Like you have the best job maybe in the world. I couldn't agree more. A great enterprise rep at a growing company. Yeah. One of the best jobs. In the one world. of the best jobs in the world. You are the CEO of your territory. It's awesome. As long as you've got a reasonable manager that is not micromanaging you, it is awesome. It's awesome. And, and I agree. It's for all the reasons you said. Yeah. Like you should be creative, entrepreneurial, and money motivated. And if you're not, you're not going to make a good rep. No, like that, absolutely not. This is way too hard otherwise. Absolutely not. So this is us taking a stand to all those reps. Yes. So let's get to Icarian. So you raised a hundred million total. Close, right? 96. How much, how much did we give you? You were first in, because the big money always is later. Probably we were first in probably 10, 15 million series A at that point. First round was, I think, the first round was probably like two or three million. The bulk of that 96 million was a $55 million raise on the series D. On the D. On the D. 
it's funny, at Series A then starts to feel a lot like a pre-seed For sure. now. Yeah. And totally that's kind of where the company was. Totally different economics now. What inspired you to go do your own thing? One, I really, really, from the time I was a little kid, I wanted to be a CEO, an mm -hmm. entrepreneur. People would say, did you ever imagine you'd be a CEO? Can you clarify that distinction? Did you want to be a CEO or did you want to be an entrepreneur? I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be someone that created something yeah. and that notoriety that came with it. Yeah. A lot of my fantasies, play games, that the ones that I remember were when we moved to Lake Tahoe and I was like in fourth or fifth grade, we had these different rooms in the garage and I would get access to these rooms because I was the founder, I, I'm not even sure what terminology I use, but I was the owner of the company and I had the special keys to get in. And my grandfather, I admired the crap out of, and he is just an awesome businessman. I thought that that would be a really interesting way to live your life. So I definitely wanted to be in charge and ideally an entrepreneur and founder. And we just had been really successful at Oracle. And then we were really successful at PowerSoft, grew it from zero revenue when I got there to roughly a hundred million when we got bought by Sybase. And then Patrol was pretty early. I think we probably did five, six, seven million in revenue, but that company got bought for almost 30 million after two and a half years. And my orientation at 28, 29 was, yeah, it, this is easy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm clearly good yeah. enough to be at the scene of all these good yeah. crimes. So yeah. let me go found my own company. Well, I'm sure it's a longer story, but generally speaking, I would say it didn't work out. It, yeah, it was two things. One, things you can't control. The 2000 crash and a complete drying up of additional funding for yep. three, four, five years, which we couldn't control. And valuations cratered, and we all know that story. But the piece I could control, which what led to PeopleSoft, was that I was so customer-centric and so sales-oriented, and we turned out to be a cloud offering, that when AT&T said, we need the product to look like this, like, We'll make that happen. Mm -hmm. And then Kaiser Permanente said, well, we want it to look different. We want it to look like this. Okay. Texas Instruments, we want it to look this other way. So we had a huge number of branches of code per customer right. that we owned right. and were responsible for. Yep. And that was a non-viable long-term strategy. So when money dried up, we were upside down on cash flow, negative cash flow and OPEX. And you could just see there is no way to write the ship without unlimited amounts of free cash to fix that problem. Yeah. Those big companies are such fool's gold. We had the same problem at my first startup. We were doing everything for Goldman and for Wall Street. We're literally a design partner. And a design partner is really just a shitty way of saying that they own you yeah, in some you way. Yeah, you work for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're my slave. And yep. so even worse is that when those design partners start putting in money into the company, then it's like you're just building a product for them that they've outsourced to yep. you. And that's what it started to feel like. I imagine it was a similar feeling. It was for super similar. And it's a lose-lose. As I got further in my career and that, that, that temptation happened, it's like, you don't want this. As a customer, you don't As want a customer, this. You don't because want you this. can't, because the whole point of a startup is to be quick and agility matters and you want to develop quickly. Absolutely. And the problem with that is if you can't push code to everybody at the same time, then you can't you actually can't move as fast as you need to. And that customer wants the scale. Their advantage is they're early with something that nobody else has. So yeah. they get to build processes or differentiation around that, but they want you to be successful because yeah. they want the capabilities to grow quickly yeah. so that they can continue to be first in line yeah. to take advantage of whatever the process is. Or, yeah. So it this is- This is actually where Benioff was a genius. Jim Steele, who we were just talking about, was telling me a story. There was a Morgan Stanley deal. The company was doing like 100 million total of revenue at the time, Salesforce. And he had the deal. He was working it for almost two years. And finally, 
they say, okay, Jim, we're going to do this deal. Mark was in the room. They said, however, we want it on-prem. And Mark just said, I'm sorry, we can't do that. I'm sorry, we can't do that. Is hundred percent the right answer? He said, but what we can do is we can quarantine off a little section of our cloud delivery model. We'll give you the code and you can write yourself on top of that code. That actually became the foundation of the app exchange for Salesforce, which then kind of catapulted that business into new heights. Love anyway. It. Invention is a mother necessity, whatever that quote is. Do you think maybe you had the inverse problem of whatever that quote is? Like you just had so many resources that yeah. it was like you could just keep throwing money around yep. and you never felt constrained to innovate in the way that you probably should have. For sure. And that was a maxim at that point in time. I remember Ann Winblad famously saying, it's all about get big fast and do not worry about efficiency. Don't worry about efficiency to code. Don't worry about efficiency to spend because it was free money. And we go back to back then, the maxim was he with most eyeballs or she with most eyeballs wins. So just get out there and blanket the market, which got translated in bad ways like it did with Hyperion, which yeah. is you know just be sloppy with your development processes or your management processes because getting more deals and getting the, the top line up was the most important thing. Yeah, it's kind of how tech companies run with a winner-take-all thing. It doesn't feel like it's winner-take-all as much anymore these days. It seems like there's space for more than one, but it's like the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross thing. Like, first place gets a Cadillac, second place gets a fair, you know, yeah. steak knives, and then third place gets nothing. Yeah, yes, <laughs> which is still true. It just feels more market-driven now because it's so easy to create that 1.0 and you put it out there and the economics are so different. You can actually put it out there for free. But you're saying that markets can be so much bigger now that there's space for more players. I think Splunk's space is a pretty good example. Yep. There's probably four or five mega companies. Oh, for sure. In that space. At least. That are all huge winners. Yep. That even by venture standards would be 10 to 20 Xers yep. at the Series A. Yep. You see what Datadog is doing, a small yep. example. Has um, just taken one portion of that market. That's yep. exactly right. Even though the business didn't work, it seemed like there was probably early signals that you were a decent CEO. Why didn't Ted, like, why didn't we, why didn't you, why didn't anybody just grab you and be like, okay, wrong place, wrong time. You learned some good lessons. Usually the big ones don't happen in your first company anyway. Let's go do it again. Or why don't you come join another client or company? Why did you then go to PeopleSoft, which was a pretty big company, right? Yep. What happened? That was the alternative. And there were, especially in 2001, early 2002, a bunch of Series A, Series B, Series companies that needed help. So one of the alternatives was go be a CEO of one of these. My internal evaluation was when I really looked back, because there was great excuses on why I carried didn't work and was honest with myself on why it didn't, is because I wasn't close enough to the engineering and development process. I was with customers all the time and didn't understand some of the chaos. I was too sales-oriented. Way too sales-oriented. I'd coded for a couple of years, so I was reasonably technical. That's very different than professional product management, professional architecture, professional UX and UE, professional engineering and development. And PeopleSoft coincidentally came in at the same time. Craig Kamu was just getting there, and they felt like their HR business, which was the cornerstone of the company, it was about a billion, probably billion, five billion, eight when I got there and HR was probably a billion of that total revenue was languishing. It was single digit growth rates and they needed to revive it. And the way they'd created their divisions, the head, they had four different general managers, the head of financials, head of CRM, head of manufacturing and head of HR. We all had product management, engineering, product marketing and support. So it's kind of all the technical aspects. Mm. And that was the alternative. Mm -hmm. Like you could go be a CEO again, 
Or you could, for me, go to a big company and all my friends that have over under of six months. Like that's a big company. You're gonna hate it there. You should go to a small company or more entrepreneurial. But I got to manage 800 technical people at that point, the most preeminent, certainly HR, but one of the most preeminent apps companies in the world. Hmm. I was like, if I'm going to really learn this so I can be a good CEO in the future, let me go directly manage these teams and really understand what engineering process looks like. You were self-aware enough to know that you had a blind spot in your game yep. and that was product and engineering. Yep. And do you think, but maybe double clicking on that blind spot, do you think it was understanding the product? Do you think it was recruiting the right people to build the product? Where do you think specifically you fell the most short? I think understanding the full engineering process at a detailed enough level that you would know when you're asking for something, whether it would be a nick to the product or a cut of the vein yep. with the product team. So from my perspective, I knew sales methodology inside and out. I didn't know development methodology. What were the different waterfall approaches and agile is just starting to, to be birthed? What does agile actually mean? What does a product manager really do? I mean, I know they put out PRDs and MRDs, but what does that really look like? What's a good product manager and what's not? What does a tech support, like how did tech support engine really work together? What does bug triage look like? What are the different analytic indicators that would show there's an unhealthy product versus a healthy product? And yeah. For me, I really am a competency-driven person. So I feel best when I take the time to go deeper on something and understand how it organically works and foundationally works. So I yeah, can read books, but that's very different than doing the work. Yeah, well, we're kicking ourselves now that we weren't able to persuade you to go do another Kleiner company, but hey, maybe it's not too late. Maybe it's not too late. <laughs> okay, 2014, I'm gonna fast forward yep. to Splunk. You joined, the company was doing Hundreds of millions? Yeah, when I joined, we had just finished a $302 million a year. And it was ripping. It, it was, was ripping. looking like quite a good company. Yeah, we'd have gone public a year and a half earlier. There was about a $6 billion market cap on $300 million of revenue, Yep, growing at 60%. Yep. And you came in as the president, CRO, whatever it yep. is. Did, was marketing under your purview too? Or just yep. sales? Okay. Yep. So all go-to-market type functions. All go-to-market functions. And then you, not to rewrite history, so tell me if I'm wrong, but the CEO at the time was retiring. Did you know this going in? So Godfrey Sullivan was CEO at the time, awesome human being. During the recruiting phase, he said, hey, I'm going to retire and there's a succession possibility. But the job is, do you want to be the head of the SVP of field ops? And at that point in time, I had learned enough lessons that I was like, I want the job in front of me, not the job that might be the job after the job in front of me. So we debated that for a while because he kept saying, hey, it's succession. It's like, Godfrey, I'm here to do your sales job. <laughs> I want to be the go-to-market guy. Yep. So fast forward today, Splunk's market cap is 18 billion as of like Sadly, yeah. today. It was 28 billion three yeah. weeks ago. Down 30% year to date. Not unique to Splunk, actually. Just generally, multiples are just not holding like they were literally a month ago. You announced that you're not going to be with Splunk in February. Yep. Stock went down like 20% in the day. It's also, come on, like it's got to feel pretty good. I mean, it didn't feel good for your wallet, but your ego, it's got to feel pretty good. So there was about a thousand employees when you joined, 300 million-ish, like you said, and you did a good job for about a year, right? Yep. And then during that point, the succession planning was going on. And I've heard you say that there was a board pitch that you had to give for the CEO job. Yep. Okay. And in context, and I'm just going to repeat this, the company was growing 50 plus percent, like one of the darlings of Silicon Valley at the time. Tell me about 
that board pitch? Actually, I want to know a lot about it. Like, tell me about what did you pitch? Tell me about like, how did you prepare? Let me just backtrack for Please, a second. Yeah. There's an interesting lesson here, I think, for myself that I think could be applicable to everybody else. When Godfrey was reaching out to me to do this job, first of all, he knew me as a product guy. We overlapped when I was at SAP and I was running all the analytics applications. And he was the CEO of Hyperion. And he knew the people saw things. So it's like, you're a product guy and I need a salesperson. So a big chunk of the interview was me having to convince him that I knew sales. Because yeah, I mean, I hear they used to sell. I hear I used to manage sales teams, but- No kidding. But as a CEO, you can't just be product. You need to be sales too. So for anyone that knows Godfrey, like we'd go to his office on weekends because it was a secret search. He'd kick back in his chair with his feet up on his desk, arms behind his head. And I'd be at the whiteboard for literally four hours. He would say, all right, so tell me how you think about a comp planning. Tell me how you think about sales organization. Do you know what a BDR group looks like? It's just constant grilling on- hiring criteria, sales operations, commissioning and effective commissioning to prove that I could actually run a sales group. And sorry to interrupt you, but how much of this was principle-based rather than very tactical? Is the question, hey, what's the OTE of a given enterprise rep right now? Or generally speaking, how do you believe in compensation of our go-to-market teams? More principle-based. I mean, it's a little bit what would be the OTE, yeah, but okay. it's like, all right, if you're gonna do a sales reorg, how'd you think about that? What would be the criteria to use? Yeah. Prior to that, the decision that I got into, like, why was I interested in this job at Splunk? I did want to go back. I'd spent my time at PeopleSoft building a bunch of product and my time at SAP building a bunch of products so I could get that engineering thing under my belt. And I want to go back and be an entrepreneur again. And what I found when I was out interviewing for all those Series ABC companies is the really good ones. Like one, we all know there are the darlings and then the ones that need a lot of work. And the darlings are the snowflakes that Frank Sluman gets to drop into 18 months for an IPO. And the ones in a lot of work are not nearly as exciting of an outcome. Yeah. And I was trying to go after the darlings and I was runner up like five times in a row to proven CEOs that were coming from a public company because they had the pedigree to actually take those darlings public. And I got in the point in my career, it's like, okay, I did a two-year tour of duty in marketing at Cisco. So I run sales teams, run engineering teams, run a marketing team, a very complex marketing team. I feel like I've got the tools to be a great CEO, but I'm not going to get the good jobs. So what do I want to do with the rest of my career? And my analysis was what I want is to be with the best company that's growing like crazy because I like growth under an awesome CEO. I will likely not get those jobs as head of engineering. I'm not a Caltech, MIT, CS major but I can get the best jobs as CRO or yep. president to go to market. So at that time I was like 48, let me spend the next 15 years before I retire, 20, whatever it's gonna be, I'll go three to five years on three or four great companies as the best go-to-market person in the industry. You make almost as much money as a go-to-market as you do as a CEO, if you're not the founder. Yep. And I'll be in my sweet spot and I'll get the quality that I want. And so when Godfrey called and said, hey, there's this opening at Splunk, are you interested in talking? It's like. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually tried to bring Splunk into this startup I was with for one year at Baynote because we we're trying to do a bunch of big data analytics yeah. to understand user behavior on their side. So it's an awesome company. Godfrey, you're an awesome CEO. This fits perfectly with what I want to do. Yeah. And the moment that I decided CEO is no longer important to me, just working with great people and great companies are important, is ironic that a year later, Godfrey is saying, I meant it. I am retiring. And will you interview to be a CEO of this company? Yep. Amazing story. When you do the interviews, what do you pitch? 
So I'd been there a year and three, four months at that point in time. And I'd met with hundreds of customers. And because I was technical, I'd spent a lot of time with the engineering team and the customer side really understand where was the product and where was the market going. And while it was an amazing company, an amazing piece of code, it was a single monolith, purposefully beautiful C++ set of binaries because they vehicle for delivery in 2004 or five when Splunk was being pushed out was you had to download a product. You went to a website and download the product. And Eric Swan and Rob Doss, the technical co-founders had a bunch of different criteria. And one of them was go from, I don't know the product to I'm in love with the product in five to 10 minutes or less. So if you had a 50 meg or smaller tight executable that you found on the web that was easy to use, you could find it, download it, install it. And for Splunk, get your first data streams into Splunk and get your aha moment in five minutes or less. That all worked super well, but it was on-prem, perpetual license, monolith. 2014 was cloud, ephemeral, all services and very well-layered API architectures, horizontal scale-out instead of vertical scale-out. So my pitch to the board was beautiful market and product. The entire company needs to be redone. We're going to have to rewrite the code and we're going to have to become a cloud-based company. And that means we're going to have to swap out big chunks of the engineering team to get that done. We have to swap out big chunks of the go-to-market team. More importantly, we're going to have to completely crater the financials. And through all that, we're going to have to implement every system differently because all the systems were built for a upfront payment, perpetual license, single transaction type of framework that was not going to be what we were going to need in the cloud. And he said, yes, you're right. So I said, and by the way, I'm the guy to do it. Because I've got some inside knowledge. I went in saying, if you don't choose me, don't assume that I'm now going to be the step child that you don't want anymore. I love this company. I love what you're doing. If you choose a different CEO, I will likely work for that CEO. I trust you guys to hire an awesome leader because my directive is I'm going to be the head of sales for these great companies. I love what you do. But if you do choose me, know that what you're voting for is blow up this awesome, hot company, blow up everything we know about it as a public company, which is going to be really hard and really messy. I don't know what just made me think about this. Do you know Mark Anderson? I do know. Yeah, absolutely. Mark and I are good friends. I had Mark on the show and he and I overlapped at Palo Alto Networks and he was doing a similar job to what you started doing at Splunk. And now... He is kind of taking on a similar transformation at Alteryx. Alteryx. Yeah. 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 That you had to do at Splunk. Yes, he is. As a first time CEO. Yes. Yep. You should call him, see how he's doing. <laughs> I, I just I just saw him. We spent time together at the Austin F1 like a month ago. <laughs> because they are are you co-sponsors, co-sponsors. on the same F1 on, car? The same car. I'm McLaren. Yeah. If you guys go to another one of those and I don't get a call, I'm going to be super pissed. That looks so fun. It is so much fun. You've got to go. It's a really cool sport. And it was the first year Austin had it. Is yeah. that right? Uh, no, no, no. No, Miami's the, Miami's the one that's getting yes. the first one. Which will be a really cool race. You oh, man. Go race. We should get a Kleiner booth or something. Absolutely. Okay, good idea. So that happens. And at what point did CEO of Intel, Pat Gelsinger, yep. when did he, he sent you an email or something at some point? Was it... As you were doing the transformation after or before telling you how hard it is, the endeavor that you're now embarking on. So uh, when Pat became CEO of Intel, and we, I got reasonable time with Pat because VM, he's a legend. He's awesome. He's just an amazing leader and human being. But VMware is a big Splunk customer and a quasi competitor. So lots of time with VMware and some time with Pat. And like 
two, three, four months ago, they had another range call. He's pretty new in the job at Intel, where he is reframing the entire next five, 10 years of Intel. The way that they're investing, the type of revenue they should be expecting, what's happening just in the happened. environment just happened. Yeah. And I reached out to him over email and said, I just want to tell you how unbelievably proud I am of you taking this super hard path. The You all want me to be short-term thinking and somehow do the right thing long-term for the company, but never miss a short-term metric and continue to play the game that's kind of trapped this company. And that is impossible. If you're going to do the right thing long-term for Intel, which is an incredibly important property for the Western world and for America, yeah, you're going to have to blow Especially up. Especially now. Especially now. You could blow a bunch of stuff up, which is going to really upset those short-term investors. But if you don't, they're going to be upset at one point. It's just going to be that slow erosion until it becomes a cliff. And the problem, and you know this better than I do, so tell me if I'm mistaken here, but the problem is, is that as you see Splunk or Intel stock go down 20, 30%, employees see that, morale starts going down, you lose key engineers, you lose key leaders, it starts to become cyclical, where it's very difficult in that upside down period to be able to inspire confidence that we in fact are going to do this and it's worth enduring through this. Yes, it is. The way I describe it to the board is it's a faith-based exercise where four or five years ago, I or whoever leader was there paints a picture to say, we look like this today, but we're going to look like this over the next three to four years. And this could be a really hard journey. And there are many easier places you could go to work and probably earn as much or more money. But what you're going to get is the pride and satisfaction of doing the world's hardest Ironman. So if you just want to be an athlete and earn a bunch of good money and be on TV and there's lots of avenues, if you want to be an Ironman winner, then come here to get through these periods. You've got to paint that picture to everybody. And there are percentages of the population that will either not disagree and commit, but stay and throw darts, or we'll walk out the door. And that's part of what you have to endure as you're kind of setting a company up for that journey. In this faith-based exercise, you're a first-time CEO. Did you have faith in yourself or how did you develop that confidence? So it's the third time, but the other two, Sorry. The other two were small. Yeah, of a big, of a, small I should say of a, public, of a public company. Yep. So I had a super strong faith in where we we're going to get to. In the accuracy of the destination. Without that destination, there's no doubt in my mind, even today, that Splunk would not be relevant today. We would have been bought by somebody and be some interesting component of some bigger company, but we wouldn't be a $3 billion in AR company. So high conviction where to get there. Anyone that says, I know the entire breadcrumb trail and I've anticipated everything, I think they're making it up because there are so many twists and turns. So I had clarity on the big picture levers we had to move no way that I or anybody else going through this has got detailed clarity on what all different variables are you'll hit and when you'll hit them and then what the recovery actions are. Yeah. Before it became obvious that this was the right decision and obvious meaning revenue, good types of revenue, the right type of licensing model, before all that became obvious, there's probably a what one to two year period where the street and everybody else wasn't quite sure. Is that fair or not really? So it will just for like a two second infomercial of our journey is super unique because the accounting standards boards, FASB, change the way that you recognize term licenses midway through our journey. So before you could, and when Autodesk and Adobe and, and others went through it, as soon as you shifted people to term contracts, you're still delivering the software to them. 
but they were paying you month over month on a two or three year contract. That then became recognized month over month. Three, four years ago, the FASB 606 came out, which says, because you're delivering all the intellectual property, mm-hmm. you must recognize that up front. So we've gone through two years of pain that the street did not see yet because we didn't have as much momentum on all the term contracts to begin to replace all perpetual contracts with term contracts while we're trying to build and build up the cloud business. But when they passed FASB, there's a brief godsend, which was, oh, we're not going to go through that valley of death of all the upfront revenue being spread over time because we got to recognize the term contracts up front. We just delayed that though, because our cloud business went from zero five years ago to we just crossed a billion dollar mark in Q3, which is awesome is I can't believe that we built a billion dollar cloud business growing at 70 plus percent, 11 quarters in a row from nothing. But that now becomes material part of the revenue that is recognized day by day. And the sad, the hard part with the investor community that infects all the employees is as soon as there's enough ratable revenue to displace the upfront revenue, then you get very disappointing revenue results. You just kicked the valley of death can down the road. We just kicked it down the road, but we hit it two years ago. So two years ago is we hit cash flow first because we changed the term contracts. Yep. We said, all right, instead of collecting upfront as we did in perpetual licenses and the few term contracts we had would force upfront collection. It's like, we're going down this cloud and term path, pay us annually on the contract. So yep. we had a cash flow valley of death. And then a year later, yep. the revenue is starting to catch up. And we were now finally getting through the revenue valley of death. We've had three positive quarters of revenue growth this year. It's not where they were. It's 30 plus percent going into the valley of death. Now yep. it's teens, but ARR and your current revenue has stayed in the high thirties to low fifties during this transition. What did the pressures of the Valley of Death feel like for Doug Merritt? Like, what was that like? Honestly, Splunk has been the hardest eight years of any company I've ever worked for. Harder than Icarian. Harder than Icarian. Because building is really hard, as as you know, as a VC. Transforming is the combination of building, because you're trying to create something new and changing all systems, all perceptions, all culture within the company. So it's not just it's it's not just a build, which is I don't want to discount how hard build is, but it's a build and transform. So the entire eight years have been really hard. The past two years have been insanely hard because you're in the valley of death. And what are you doing to cope with that? I just want to know more about your psyche during these valleys. It's a lot of self motivation and self talk because there's not a lot of people you can rely on. I, what do you mean by that? The analogy of like, it's lonely at the top type thing. Yep. There's only so much that you're going to share with anybody around you, which is the hard part of any executive job and a CEO job. Like many other CEOs, I've had a coach for years, so that helps. But my coping mechanism, going back to something that moves is I just try and talk to as many people as possible. So without necessarily divulging all the dark thoughts I'm having, I was spending time with the Mark Andersons of the world. But you know, the CEO circle of, so how's it going? How are you getting through this issue? Yeah, Because the transformation issues are tough, but through that, you've got retention issues. You've got code quality issues. You've got yep. pricing issues. You've got sales ops and sales traction issues. And so for most of us, I think we're always in this dance of how do you not show too much vulnerability, mm-hmm. but still keep a very open mind yep. and a very humble orientation. When you feel self-talk going negative, how do you cultivate positive self-talk? 
sometimes it means I've got to take like two hours and just go work out, walk around the block, like clear my head yeah. because it's hard to always instantaneously correct. My wife is an amazing supporter and she's a huge confidant and luckily she's been in senior levels of business as well. So yeah. she empathizes with what I'm trying to do. But for me, it's trying to surround myself with as much positivity as possible. That, yeah. you know, staying true to workouts that really helps me balance myself and feel good. Really being selective about people in my life. I don't want a Pollyanna life, but there are people in life that like to take the negative position on everything. And it's an interesting position, but through the years, like I don't have mental and emotional energy for that. So if you're someone that is always critical of everything, I'm just not gonna spend much time with you. So it is, for me lately, I've really cleaned up my diet. I found that I was dealing with too many fluctuations because I wasn't huh. as good on- What'd you do? I've given up all alcohol for the past three months. I've given up all carbs. I, like there's more of a strict keto diet. And I feel much more balanced, which is good. Much more continuous energy, I guess. That, that has helped. You're going to give up drinking? Do you think you're done? I think it'll be very selective. It must feel good waking up Sunday mornings. It is. Feeling good. And, and again, I don't want to become a fanatic on any of these right, things. Right, right, right. Because there's nothing wrong with drinking. But through a lot of stress and through COVID, it's easy to get to the point where it's, you know what? I'm going to have a couple glasses of wine tonight to relax or a couple bourbons or... And it's just like, I found that wasn't good for me. It wasn't yeah. working. My head wasn't as clear. It wasn't. Yeah, makes total sense. When you think back on your career now, one of the things that you and I briefly chatted about before this, and actually part of the reason why I don't do prep calls, I put that in air quotes, is because when I do a prep call with someone, and I realized this in the early episodes, I am getting the narrative that they have reconstructed for themselves of their career. And the problem with the prep call is that it's basically just a reconstruction of that narrative. And so, especially with seasoned executives, you have comms teams that are helping you construct that. And the worst part generally about these narratives is that it's all of the winning. Right. It's all of the positive things that have happened because that's what we're supposed to talk about. Yep. And so, I don't know, I, I guess that's a big impetus for why I wanted to do this show. And I think taking that a degree further, it's a big reason why I don't do prep in air quotes, because the more we prep, the more we just want to talk about all the success that we've had, because that's the narrative that we reconstruct for ourselves. When you think about for you, looking back on your career and fingers crossed for all of us, it's not over yet. Do you think about that reconstruction of a career? Does the question make sense? Oh, for sure. I've got the same reaction when I watch executives being interviewed up on stage at conferences and it's just highlight to highlight is such a disservice to themselves and everybody else. Cause that is not, you know, let's go back to all the awesome companies you guys have funded there for every company. There are 50 dark days where you think this is done. We went down the, the wrong alley. Well, there nobody, is no, there, nobody there. needs to hear from you when Splunk is ripping. Right. Like you don't need to hear from anybody else. You don't need to go talk to snowflake yep. right now. It's on fire. Yep. What message will resonate with somebody message resonated with you What message that resonated with Pat when you sent him that email is like when they're going through the valley. When you go talk to Bob Muglia about what was snowflake like four and a half years ago or seven years ago, you get the real story of like, we weren't sure it was going to work at all. Yeah. But that's the same thing with all of us personally. There is no straight line. Anyone that even pretends like there's straight lines probably led a pretty boring life. So my career has a lot of different chapters to it because I'm really trying to learn. 
And the Splunk chapter, there are so many different learnings that I'll take with me to the next endeavor. Then I think that's part of what hopefully keeps a 40 or 50 or 60 year old executive relevant in a world of a bunch of teenagers and 25 year olds that are founding these companies is there actually is some value to having gone down a bunch of blind alleys and realizing if you're willing to interrogate yourself, why did I go there? What decisions did I make that I would correct in the future based on those patterns I'm seeing? So I really do, whenever I am talking to myself or talking to people, I'm trying to be as transparent as possible on the mistakes, as well as trying to take some time. I've got a bigger problem, which is how do I celebrate the successes more? Because I get so over-rotated on what did I learn and how do I improve myself that often I don't give myself enough pats on the back and motivation. Yeah. Can you tell me like, what? You didn't get fired. There's no chance that they, did you get fired? Yeah, I did. What happened? I did. The board decided that that $3 billion, it's a very different company than it was at $600 million when I took over, and that we had gotten far enough on this transformation that a lot of the- You're not a seasoned enough big company executive. Yep. yep. A lot of the skills I had that were more building skills were not going to be the skills going forward, and they wanted to- Even Doug Merrick can get topped for scale, you ha <laughs> like you haven't seen this next era of scale. So I really deeply believe that every CEO, and we see it. John Chambers, Jack Welch, you can go back to whoever was the most vaunted person at the time. Every CEO has got an expiration date. And it's a combination of two things. Even founders, by Even the founders, way. absolutely. I think it's one, the web of favors is really hard to break. We all have egos and you get kind of tied into the, here's my belief set, here's my people, here's the things that work. And at a certain, given how fast our industry moves at a certain point in time, you just need someone completely different to come in and blow stuff up. And then- they need the next Doug Merritt yeah. in some way. And I'm not, when we had that discussion a few weeks ago, it's right before the announcement, it was like, you know, no pushback on my side. I would not go out and interview for a five or 10 or $15 billion CEO company role. That's not my sweet spot. My sweet spot is earlier in the cycle where it's closer to product, closer to customers, closer to employees. Yeah. So, But part of you still independent of the work that had to be done, you were proud and wanted to see the mission through. For sure. I'm really proud of what we've done. The transformation is one of the hardest transformations, I think, in the industry, especially given as a data set of products. Mm -hmm. And I still have got a obviously huge emotional attachment to how do we make sure that this continues on a go forward basis. Mm -hmm. So on the what decision by the board, it's like no problems at all. There's the when that's a, a different. So what's next, man? Before you tell me, can I make a request of you? Please don't go to VC. Please stay as an operator. There's not enough world-class operators. And I just sit across the table and I listen to you and I talk to you. And the whole time, I'm just like, please tell me you have enough energy for one or two more runs in you because we need it. We need it out of you. Now, Jimmy, now go ahead. You. Now thank go you. ahead. Looking at all you guys crushing the VC <laughs> side, it does make all of us operators think, are we just totally idiotic for doing all this operations job? I definitely have got the energy for at least one more, if not two more. We'll see. I also love my family. I love my kids. And these jobs are super intense. But my main focus right now is just to get back and learn. I've been so focused on Splunk that while I read, it's for going back to the competence thing. For me, it's really different than getting close to like what's the latest on blockchain and all yep. the different iterations are out there. What's really going on with NFTs? What's So last week was the first week that I really had time because the first week was trying to keep everyone calm about the transition. The second week was Thanksgiving. And it's 
so exciting what's happening in this industry right now. It is as exciting as 99, 2000 was. I think this is literally 10X of what we had back then. You feel incredibly energized. My mind is exploding every single day as I'm listening to different podcasts and downloading different widgets and playing with them. It is all the work that we've done for 50, 60 years. It makes sense. You've seen the layer after layer after layer and this recreation or the augmentation that from what I can tell Web3 is representing is monumental. The disruption that we've talked about in a positive way of driving efficiencies into every single walk of life and in every industry vertical. I can't wait to see what happens over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And for those listening that don't know what Web3 is yet, which I actually think there's quite a lot of people, go through like, what was Web1? What is Web2? And what do you think Web3 is? So Web1, going back to the late 80s and early 90s, was the initial set of standards that formed what we eventually became all know as internet. So HTTP, DNS, SNMP, all these awesome open standards that were built initially for research and government capability that then people started to play with and actually turn into commercial realm. Web2 is the bulk of where all the interesting money and scale was made. That's where those open protocols were closed companies mm -hmm. were built on top of them. The Facebooks of the world, the Twitters of the world, the Googles of the world, because they were pretty difficult to work with. And the whole mobile era was born through that Web 2.0 framework. And it obviously revolutionized everything we know from DoorDash and Uber Eats to Lyft and Bird and awesome, awesome work. Web 3, if I really cut through, is how do we use technologies like blockchain in completely transparent, open data framework with security as a foundational item of that technology set to further with open protocols to further that work that Web 1 and Web 2 has been built on. As the world moves from analog to more and more digital and everything will be digital as we all, at least I'm sure you and I believe that, mm -hmm. how do we make sure that we continue to iterate with both the technologies and the culture and, and the deployment so that we're building an increasingly more efficient and safe and fair and distributed and autonomous world? Oh, that's a good definition. Would you ever do another one? Like start another one? Do you have that idea? What Christine, my wife is saying is like, why? I know that your mindset is you've gotten really good at kind of that 50 to $100 million upscale, but why wouldn't you start something? Well, dude, it feels like you're, I'm sitting five feet from you and I feel like you're just starting your career. The energy that you have, I literally feel like you're just starting your career again. Thank you for saying that. And if you have that type of energy, I don't know. My whole thing now is learning from core databases and networking to systems management tools, to data amalgamation tools, to process systems, ERP systems have to be rewritten for Web 3.0. Like yep. we know what this pattern looks like. So where are we and what are the next big leverage points? And for me, most importantly, what's gonna make the biggest mission-driven impact to humanity? My calling card to getting into tech, and I sound so stupid and trite and made up, but it really, it's an honest, aha I had when I was interviewing at Accenture, all enlightenment and progress that I can trace goes back to liberalization of data and information and education. And the dark periods are always take those things away. You can control people. And I looked at technology in the late 80s like, oh my God, this is information on steroids. Like we can really make the world a better place, at least humanity a better place, if we continue to blow down the moats and the barriers between free flow of information. That's so when I look at Web3, it's like, this is, I literally get electrified. It's like, oh my God, this is even 10X what we've talked about before. Yep. 
as far as immutable and transparent and open. And there's going to be a lot of friction. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be trying to slow it down because it's going to take away their livelihood like every revolution. But I view it as, I know it's evolutionary because it's been a series of iterations, but I think this one is pretty gosh darn revolutionary. Who's a CEO that you admire? Maybe you could put a short list together, one that comes to mind immediately. So the person that I have watched the most YouTube renditions of is yeah. Jeff Bezos. Yeah. And yeah, having sat with him in 96, 97, when he was evangelizing books online, his thoughtfulness, intelligence, and chess playing or go playing or whatever multidimensional game he's on is, I think is almost unparalleled, which you can see from starting a company from scratch to, to where he is now. I know that they are deadly competitors with each other, but what Satya has done, just going back to my my life, like coming into Microsoft, which was not a company when he came in that people were like, oh my God, that's gonna be the most valuable company in the world, guaranteed. And driving that transformation is just phenomenal. My appreciation of what he's been able to do to completely re reinvigorate that company is incredible. On the Satya thing, your leadership style, just your general ethos now reminds me of him in some way. Like what he says at Microsoft is that they want learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls. I know that's something that Splunk took to heart. And it feels like it's something that you now are really like, you just want to consume as much as you can. Yeah. And I think that's, that principle is what took Microsoft to the heights that they're at today. That's yes. what I would argue. Yeah. I think they went from proving you're the smartest person in the room to listening and learning. And in this world, if you're not listening and learning, I think you're in deep trouble. There's so many 12-year-olds out there that have the next great idea yep. that would blow all of us away. And if we are going to talk over them because they're 12, it's a very egalitarian state right now. So, Hell of a place to leave it. I close with all the same questions. What does grit mean to you? One of my most important hiring traits and the thing that I actually look for the most which is the ability, one, this learn-it-all orientation that I really, really, at life is evolutionary and I'm here to learn and not to get resistant or have my ego get in the way of being open to change. But coupled with that, that's not enough. You have to be willing to pick yourself back up again and again. You get knocked down a lot in this life. And when I look at my hiring practices, it's amazing how important grit is. It's not what school you came from. Often the best people, when I look at Splunk, a ton of the best people never even went to college. They went directly into the military and they learned, they went into some cyber arm of the military or others and are self-taught. And those are some of the hardest working, most down to earth, gritty people that I've ever met. And it's not just military, it's across the board, but, but I think it's, it's the foundation of business. Like doing something different is harder than hell. And if you're not willing to look stupid and pick yourself back up again, you're not gonna be successful. Well, I think we just got one of the most killer free agents in the business world that we could have. So I don't even want to release this episode because I don't want anybody else to know what I just found out. Doug, thank you. Andrew, and I'm flattered. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to spend time together. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.